Hello, welcome to Empavilion, everyone. Thank you for coming out in the rain. Naomi's just entered. She's, she's saying hello. Welcome to. Um, we always like to acknowledge um, the traditional owners of this land. Um, this is traditionally the Bunurang um, people's land. And um, we would like to pay our respects to elders past, present and to the future and acknowledge uh, any Aboriginal people here tonight. Um, I would like to say that there are a couple of seats up the front and also that the ponchos are on the seats and also available up at the kiosk. They keep you dry when you leave, but they also keep you really warm if you get cold. And that there's two heaters if you haven't got a seat already. Um, get here earlier next time. I'm going to pass over to Laura Phillips um, and she's going to introduce this talk tonight. Thank you very much for coming. Okay, thank you all so much for coming. As, as Jesse was saying, we were really expecting about 10 people, so this is beyond expectations in this kind of weather, so thank you so much for braving the cold. Um, as Jesse mentioned, my name's Laura Phillips and I'm the editor of Open Journal. Um, Open Journal is a, is a print and online publication which you can look at at openjournal.com.au. Um, we advocate for, for good design and, and better, develop, better development, um, which is encompassed in our, in our concept of high-density happiness, which is the name of our speaker series. Um, we launched it at the Empavilion last year. We've been um, holding similar talks kind of every fortnight um, at our hub at Jewel Station um, in Brunswick um, and we're thrilled to be back at the M Pavilion again this year so thank you to Jesse and the M Pavilion team for having us again. Um, so our concept of high density happiness is, is really um, a platform to kind of advocate for um, the well-designed apartments can contribute to positive mental and physical well-being of the occupants um, and ultimately build resilient communities and sustainable cities. Um, so it's, it's really kind of brought together in um, Neo Metro, which is Neo, Open Journal is the content platform for Neo Metro's development at Jewel Station in Brunswick. Um, so the panel tonight, obviously we're thrilled to be joined by some quite um, esteemed speakers who I'll soon introduce, um, is really focusing on the improvements um, to the design review process, obviously in light of the, the recent um, draft apartment standard guidelines which have been released, um, and really looking at how aesthetic guidelines can support quality, adaptable and sustainable housing for Melbourne's growing population in future. Um, so to introduce panel members, obviously to my right, Minister for Planning Richard Wynne, who we're thrilled is joining us today. Um, Richard's been a member of, for Richmond since 1999, um, previously served as a Minister of Housing and obviously is a keen advocate um, for, for various planning issues in, in Melbourne. Um, we've got to my far left Simon Knott, who's founding director of BKK Architects. Um, he's been uh, the co-host of a weekly architecture program called The Architects for 10 years um, and an active um, member of the Australian Institute of Architects. Um, to my left immediately is Karen Alcock, who's the director of MAA Architects. Um, Karen's the chair of the University of Melbourne's Architecture Advisory Board and also a member of the Victorian Chapter Council at the Australian Institute of Architects. And then finally to my far right um, is James Tutton. James is the director of Neo Metro, um, as well as being highly active in the in the mental health, arts and education spheres in Melbourne. He's founding director of um, of CAP, founding board member of CAP, I should say, Contemporary Arts Precinct, which is going to soon be um, soon be enlivened in, in Collingwood, um, also of um, co-founder of Smiling Mind and a founder of Moonlight Cinema as well. Um, so I might kick off today. I've basically got a, a quite a uh, relatively informal session where I've got a kind of a number of questions that will, you know, structure the conversation. Um, but it's mostly kind of a conversation between the panel members. So so feel free to you know jump in at any time um, for those on stage. Um, so if I might start off maybe um, Richard of why apartment living is so important to urban sustainability in, in Australian cities um, and 
why do you think that the standards that currently being um, currently being floated um, we delivered improved and better housing? Well, thank you very much, and I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting tonight, and I'm delighted to be here at the M Pavilion with the wind at my back. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's freezing up here. <laughs> um, so. Uh, it's a fantastic opportunity to have a conversation about apartments because when we uh, released our apartment um, guidelines discussion paper, we weren't really necessarily sure what sort of an uptake we'd get uh, in terms of interest of people uh, in apartment uh, living. And it's, we've really been quite overwhelmed by the uh, number of submissions, the, the conversations that we've had. Uh, and. Uh, I think a, a real sense that we've actually touched a nerve and that people really want to have a, a meaningful conversation about, not only about apartments but about the quality of apartment living. Because we know that uh, by 2050 uh, or possibly even earlier, uh, we are going to surpass Sydney as being the nation's largest uh, population centre. I mean, it's a pretty amazing shift uh, of, of demographics to Melbourne. And we know that every year, year on year, we're going to have to house 100,000 people every year, right through to 2050. And if you think about those figures, uh, they are uh, a really significant challenge for government. So we, we have to obviously look to our regional cities uh, to house people, uh, our growth corridors, our middle ring suburbs, and of course uh, the CBD and surrounds. So uh, within really virtually on our doorstep here, we've got Fisherman's Bend just over the way here. Uh, we've got Docklands, of course, which is only half, half finished now after almost 20 years. Uh, uh, we've got Egate to the to the uh, a contiguous parcel of land to Docklands, and of course we've got the Arden Macaulay precinct, which I'm sure you're all aware of, which we've just released some um, some uh, master planning for recently. So apartment style living is going to be a part of the answer as to how we are going to house this hundred thousand people. But and for many of uh, many people from the development community. Uh, the guidelines that we will put in place will require no change because they are building really high quality apartments. But there are a number of examples that I could take you to today where, that where from any of our perspectives, you'd say this is not the quality of apartments uh, that we ought to or should expect here in Melbourne. Uh, they are very small. Uh, they are very reliant upon um, borrowed light. Uh, they have poor ventilation, that they're noisy. Uh, and, and frankly, their resale value uh, and their rental value, I think, is diminished by virtue of the fact that their, their designs are, are frankly, uh, not adequate for the Melbourne market. That's why uh, we started the conversation. Uh, we're, we're, we're clearly still in, in uh, a quite, uh, quite uh, important, but both both an, an important uh, conversation about the technical aspects of, of what the guidelines uh, might look like because we actually want to put in place guidelines that are going to be both effective but also understood by the experts here uh, and obviously local government as well in terms of the approval processes for them as well. So um, there is a way to go and uh, we, we have had an expert, uh, expert group working on this and we're continuing to refine those guidelines 
we hope to uh, bring those to fruition in the next few weeks. And the thing from from Simon and Karen's perspective, because obviously you guys, as as practicing architects, have been through the design review process multiple times, mm. in, and um, in both capacities have contributed to the to the draft standards. Um, how would you see the apartment that the, the improve, improvements can be made to that process, and how they can be better regulated to support better quality? Uh, well, I've been saying for a long time, and I think position of the institute as well that um, the apartment standards are going to do one thing, and uh, but they're not going to be the panacea for all um, our living standards. Uh, they're going to lift, they're going to bring up the bottom level up. Um, but I do think there is an opportunity, as we know, with every site, there's a different level of constraints, there's different things to consider. Uh, that it's got to be coupled with some other mechanisms like design review panel processes. Um, I've been lucky to be on the Mornington Shire's design review panel, and I've just been put onto the OVGA's design review panel, and I think that sort of independent review. They're really well placed. I was quite shocked when I asked that they don't do a lot of apartment reviews within the OVGA. There's a great great opportunity for them to be looking at apartment developments. And I think not seeing it from a, uh, a necessarily a regulatory review process for developers, but a way to add value to developments. And I think if developers can, can see that value, can see the value not only in adding to the design of, the, of an apartment project, but also perhaps facilitating a better design uh, uh, planning re uh, review process and getting some sort of, um, I know in, say in Adelaide, if you go to the uh, design review panel there and you go three times and you incorporate what they say, you get a permit. So, you know, there's ways that you can you can legislate to make that process better and I think we need to have a couple of those those mechanisms working to lift, really lift the uh, lift the quality of the living, living environment we have. Yeah, I agree with Simon. I think that um, your developers, if you can incentivize, create incentives for developers to incorporate design in their mm. projects, if you can in, engage in design review but see that as a positive outcome, which is beyond just uh, the design element of it, where it actually gets something quicker or more certainty, there's a real... Uh, there's a real bonus there. And incentives also, I think, you know, we've seen it in other cities, many other cities around the world, um, that if you provide greater community benefit, then you get other benefits too. So you might offset that with giving an extra level or two within a development that then you might have to provide a community park for or a childcare centre or a school, in fact. And that's something that's happened, I think... Uh, I think the government's just approved here or was on the, in the process of approving a, an apartment development where a, a school was placed within it and they got an extra few levels on top to offset the cost of that or it's in the process of happening. So um, those sorts of mechanisms are another way to, to incentivise it, as Karen says. I might, I might throw it to, to James, who's more on kind of the coalface of, of buyer confidence as a, as a developer. Um, I suppose, especially as, as Richard touched on, you know, apartment living is acknowledged in some capacity to, to being a part of our urban sustainability um, solution. How would you say that greater regulation would contribute to, to greater buyer confidence? And uh, you've just returned from New York, James. In those cities, apartment living is not only the norm, but it's desired, aspired to. Do you think apartment standards could ever contribute to that form of perception? Uh, I mean, I, I think there... I mean, we're sitting talking about a regulatory environment and I think one of the really important things which we can't forget is that we also need to address issues of, uh, I guess, social and cultural change and that goes to the issue of kind of normalising apartment living uh, in the context of Australia where uh, a normal family home has tended to have been something a lot more uh, suburban rather than urban. And the reality is, and I'm not saying that suburbia doesn't have a good reason to exist, uh, however, uh, if one looks at uh, density and a city which is growing by 100,000 people per annum, uh, you really you need to place 
those people coming in in proximity to infrastructure, and that's uh, transport infrastructure, it's public open space, it's hospitals, it's schools, it's retail, and the impacts of not doing that from a physical health and mental health perspective are really quite significant. So I think there needs to, in my mind, be a bit of a recalibration as to what the norm is in terms of uh, how people live in Australia, but then also coming back to that regulatory issue, um, if one looks uh, at what drives apartment sales, so much of it is uh, really uh, treating apartments as a commodity. So the bulk of apartments in Melbourne are sold to you know, mum and dad type investors who are then leasing the apartments out and they're really developed as a financial instrument and they're in doing that there's a disconnect between what it means to have a home which someone lives in and something which gives a yield from a, a capital perspective and I, I think what we really need to do is kind of connect the end user and the buyer so that you get stronger advocacy from the people who are living in the apartments around what is acceptable to them in terms of apartment standards, looking at natural light, looking at um, uh, lighting which improves safety, looking at sound insulation, etc, etc. All things which are covered in terms of the proposals being considered at the moment. And by doing that, I mean, the best way to get developers to uh, develop better product is uh, to incentivise them in a financial sense. So if buyers uh, advocate and will only buy quality apartments, then quite rapidly I think what we'll see is a situation where developers start developing better quality product. And yes, there's a group of developers who do very good product, except there's also, you know, they're not the issue. Uh, I don't think the, you know, the... Uh, the small giants, the neo-metros of this world are the problem. It, it, it's, it's the uh, more commodity-driven, uh, lower-quality developers which the regulatory environment needs to address. So I think what we need to see is, you know, partly a regulatory thing, but then partly a change in terms of uh, connecting the uh, buyer of the apartment with the end user, and then also uh, really more aware, more informed uh, buyers so that they push, you know, higher standards on developers? I think that that has happened already. I mean, even since uh, the talk of apartment standards came in, I mean, we're getting different briefs from clients for what they should build. Um, I mean, there's much more awareness about the financial risks of buying into poor quality developments, issues of resale, those sorts of things. So even though the apartment standards may not have been instigated yet, they are, have made a change over the last couple of years. Mm. And developers are definitely steering clear of the smaller apartments with a tendency to go to yeah. larger apartments. So um, I, I think I, that's happening, Jane. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, when I came into the job, I mean, essentially most of, <coughs> pardon me, the apartment products were were predominantly, overwhelmingly, one-bedroom apartments and, you know, very small uh, and now we virtually see hardly any. So we're seeing now uh, a you know, minimal number of one-bedroom apartments, lots of two, three and indeed four-bedroom apartments now uh, are the sorts of projects that, uh, that are coming be before me for approval. But I just wanted to pick up on the really important point around the social aspect of uh, the of, of apartments, which was uh, also my experience. Uh, I was recently in, in New York as well, and when I was talking to the um, the um, senior planning uh, officers in at the New York um, City Council, they they have got uh, a highly sophisticated understanding not only of apartments but of the need to maintain communities, mm. so that when they 
uh, when the uh, when there is a rezoning of land, uh, upzoning of land in New York for residential use, the the ground rules are absolutely clear that there has to be a significant element of affordable community and social housing in the development. It's 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 not a debatable point. It, it's simply a statement of fact that when the land is upzoned, this is these are the ground rules and this is how it happens. And uh, it was that they actually couldn't believe that we're still at the at the front end of that conversation here in, in Melbourne and indeed in Australia. I mean, we we do not have yet a sophisticated uh, regime of being able to uh, ensure that in 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 development approvals that we have, that we have got you know, inclusionary zoning. And, th and that's why we went to the last election and said we, we are going to do inclusionary zoning, we are going to do it on state government-owned land. We do have to amend the Planning and Environment Act to allow that to happen both uh, as a head of power but also for councils as well uh, who want to get into this place and Moreland, Darabin and Yeah, Melbourne. I mean, when, when will that yeah. happen? I mean, that, the only way that is going to happen is for it to be legislated. I mean, it's crazy it doesn't happen here. I mean, the... the 30-year infrastructure plan identified something like 30,000 affordable uh, dwellings need to be built, you know, sort of almost immediately. Yeah. So unless unless you know, federal, state, local government start to legislate that it's not going to happen, it has to happen. That's right, and uh, we will be putting legislation in the parliament before the end of the year to right. amend the Planning Environment Act. Fantastic. Which is absolutely a positive step, and I suppose you jump to one of my one of my next questions. Which, in terms of you know, communal space is often in, in the development industry seen as such a kind of a, a private communal space. In the way that the development industry just just talks about amenity, it's often focused on you know private pools, private gyms, and they're quite you know insular and isolated kind of bastions of elitism. You know, within within very kind of often expensive apartment towers. So I suppose I mean throwing it over maybe to, to Simon and Karen, how do you see that that communal element that gives back and look, looks outwards and gives back to the greater community can be more encouraged and best incorporated into new developments? Well, I think it's on a number of levels. Um, I think traditionally a lot of developers have thought of their site as, you know, the, the edge of the building's right on the site and they don't deal with anything else. I think in Melbourne we've got to a much more sophisticated understanding of the public realm uh, and that the street is just as important as, as the space of the site. Um, and I think not only, I think that's probably, I think where we need to do probably the most uplift in our apartment developments is the quality of the interaction with the public realm and how that street interface uh, operates. So it can, it can be on the most micro of level, levels and it can be just putting seating along the edge of a footpath or a small indent into the facade that it can encourage someone to linger there. It can be on that sort of level that you can have a dynamic change in the way that that operates. Um, so I don't think it needs to be grand. We don't need to provide a, a sort of, you know, a pocket park for every development. But I think we are starting to understand that. And I think a lot of um, apartment dwellers are starting to understand the benefits of that as well, that you might enter through the coffee shop that's on the ground floor or, uh, you know, as you do all over the world, that, that 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 line between public and private is incredibly blurred. And uh, and I think a number of developers now around Melbourne, uh, including now Metro and um, Assemble and those sorts of developers and milieu are starting to fully understand what that means and, and the benefit that that will have ongoing for the development. And, uh, I mean, it's worth adding... and. You know, I'm not here to sell someone an apartment, though if anyone wants to buy, please call. Um, if, if we look at a, an instance of, say, um, 
uh, Jewel Station in Brunswick, which is a project which both um, Simon and Karen have worked on. In that, in that development, we've got a significant amount of public open space, and most of it is accessible not only to the residents but to the broader community. And the intent there is actually to provide the infrastructure from a community perspective in terms of. Uh, urban farming, in terms of bike paths, in terms of outdoor spaces, etc., which can be shared by people. And if you look at, there's a fantastic research paper by uh, Professor Billy Giles Corty, and what it does is look at uh, the impacts of shared community space on the well-being in terms of physical and mental health on apartment inhabitants. And um, it, it is a key driver if you have that public space, green space, as well as access to public transport, uh, it has a massive uplift in terms of people's well-being and it just makes sense from a development perspective if we approach things not just from a profit perspective but from the perspective of also accounting for the well-being of the inhabitants who are moving into it and that you know then I think becomes a combination between policy and you know the outlook of developers who are more proactive on these things. It doesn't need to cost a lot of money either and I, I think that's the, that's, the, that's the real lesson in that and I think we're going back to the 1970s when the social sciences uh, started to play a lot of a, a big role in, in architectural design and it's something we've forgotten a lot uh, that those little interactions say on a, on a suburban street it's taking your garbage out going collecting the mail doing the gardening that's where you have all that interaction with the neighbours and in a lot of apartment developments that's completely lost as you're isolated you know from your car park up into your lift and into your apartment and there's there's no kind of interaction but the cities you mentioned earlier uh, whether it's you know, Paris, New York, Hong Kong that street life that interaction all along there's no ideas about over looking screens at 1700 high so you sort of your, your balconies into a box that doesn't see anybody else it's fully uh, permeable and everybody lives on top of each other and it's fantastic I agree but I think we should be careful that we don't think that a coffee shop solves how you deal at street mm. level yes. and um, and that different sites need different solutions and I think that we will we have found and a client pointed this out to me recently uh, every development gets a coffee shop in the yeah. bottom, but there's only so many you can sustain. And it's super important that we do have good architects, mm. we have you know, good legislation, we have good support from councils to actually really understand what makes a building work at street level and, um, and actually deliver well beyond these sort of cliches of what makes, you yeah, know, what makes buildings work. I, I would say I, I, some buildings, I mean, we really work hard at what happens at a street level because I think that that's where you often are interacting with a building, especially as a public, and we think it's really important that our buildings knit into their neighbourhoods. And that often happens at this level, not at that level. But you do get a lot of big buildings and they're terrible at the street and really how to make that happen. And I think, you know, the apartment standards look at amenity, but how you get things working at street, how you get them um, knitting in, I think that, that comes to really good designers and how can we support that I think is really critical. I do think we also need good coffee. I'm just <laughs> but it's a completely, uh, completely relevant point that Karen raises in terms of most often you see kind of apartment buildings on, on a street facade being quite, you know, dominated by either the basement car park or kind of service cages, which in terms of, you know, creating positive street life and encouraging pedestrian-centric cities is, is quite in inhibiting. Um, so, Richard, maybe um, would you be able to comment on if it was ever considered to be a part of the apartment standards guidelines in terms of incorporating that ground, that ground level facade? Oh, I, I think it's absolutely crucial. Um, and if you, 
If you look at some <clears throat> some of the projects um, that are getting out of the ground now down Elizabeth Street, it's it's pretty daunting uh, to see uh, what uh, some of that uh, some of the uh, some of the designs look like and, and how they do address the street uh, is I think absolutely fundamental. Um, and I really I I learned all this from Rob Adams, who you know is known to all of you, of course, and uh, has probably been the most influential. Well, in my view, uh, one of the most influential urban designers um, this city has had in the last 25 years. And, uh, I mean, he, I think, has understood more than anybody else from the city of Melbourne's perspective, where, of course, I had the opportunity to work with him, um, just how important the street is and just how important activation of the street is uh, and how buildings actually interact at, at street level is actually makes the building. And... Uh, uh, we always look in uh, in uh, in approvals for what is happening at the street level, because if if you just get these wall, you know, basically these sheer walls where there's no capacity to 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 interact at all, I mean that is not good design. Absolutely, and I suppose I might kind of move the conversation on a bit in terms of you know discussing the regulations and, and how they're actually going to be um, uh, employed before we all freeze. Um, <laughs> So maybe um, Simon and Karen, do you want to start in terms of what your expectations are for, for the for the um, for more regulation, um, and how how do you think that they'll influence on, on the current design review process? Well, we don't actually have a design review process at the moment. I mean, we've got. So, well, I say that because I think it's a really critical part, and Simon picked up mm. on it before. The apartment standards. Um, the danger of apartment standards is they end up being a tick in the box. And we know that apartments are much more sophisticated to that and they do need this complement of other things to help support good design. So design review is critical. Uh, how that's implemented, it's, it's not going to be easy, but it is critical. And it, it is about the amenity of apartments, but then the design review process will still will pick up those things like issues at the street, which are quite sophisticated issues that at a council level, level often... Um, get sort of, oh, you, you must make the whole of the street a glass facade, you know? But that, actually, streets don't work like that. They actually are often hit and miss. There often are blank pieces of facade. And it is very hard to... Um, you need quite a sophisticated team of people assessing buildings to work out how you get that to work. So design review is a really positive thing, I think, across uh, the, the whole issue. I think, it, I think it also pulls it out of the political um, milieu that it usually is within, uh, and that can be, at local council levels, that can be uh, problematic, I think, um, and starts to give another voice to that, and allows, not, I don't mean uh, taking the power away from those councils, but actually gives them another way to say, well, um, this is what the experts have said, uh, and this is the way we should be moving forward. So, look, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with what Karen, with, with what Karen said, and I think, um, yeah, we, we can't rely on this as the panacea just to have a, 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 a set of guidelines that's going to do everything for apartments because what we've seen in the review process of those guidelines already is a whole lot of people picking up sites and going, well, if I apply them to this, I'm going to get a worse outcome than what I had before. Well, that, it's, it's not going to work for every site, so there needs to be performance measures to them. So yeah. I think there'll be a whole... Uh, the way that they actually get implemented will be uh, vital to their success in that um, you may not meet the deemed to satisfy provision, you may not meet that standard, but if you can 
can meet the intent of that standard in another way or there's a better offset or there's a better benefit, then uh, then the, the, you know, the process should yeah. move forward. Mm. Unfortunately, most of the planners we have assessing those things uh, are not that well equipped to assess it more than a tick the box. They're not, they're not qualified for that. They're not designers, they're not. Uh, so um, particularly at that sort of local council level, it may be a bit different if you're dealing with the city of Melbourne or other, or city of Moreland in fact, or more sophisticated councils. Uh, that, that was dangerous. I very much agree, and that's, um, it's been quite interesting, uh, and you know, I, I do think it's worth noting, I mean, Moreland has some absolutely appalling development there, but the, the, the council, in fact, in recent times, have been um, very positive and very, very well informed in terms of how they've gone about things. They've been leading the way. They, they, they've been quite exceptional. What What is interesting, though, is I, I think as a developer, you look at a design review process, and uh, it's quite cynically, people can see it as um, a, a pain in the ass and a tick the box exercise. When in reality, uh, you can actually get a lot from it, in as much that you're getting uh, a peer review from uh, people who are well informed, educated on the issue issues and have a sophisticated outlook and you can take that back into your development and your consultant team and ultimately deliver a better product through that. So I, I think there needs to be a bit of a shift in the way that developers actually see that, that review process if they're, going, if they're going through it. Another, just to throw a kind of uh, cat amongst the pigeons or whatever the expression is, just in terms of affordability and just that danger around very prescriptive guidelines which then in turn have a flow-on effect around the yield which developers can get on sites and that then has uh, runs the risk of actually pushing uh, or impacting affordability because you know in a very crude sense if a um, site costs you ten dollars and you can get ten apartments on it if it still costs you ten dollars but you can only get eight apartments there the flow-on effect and pressure upward pressure on uh, apartment prices has the risk of being substantial. So I think uh, putting design issues aside, there is an amount of um, caution which is needed around the, um, the social impact from an affordability perspective on changes. And that's not, to, it's not as black and white as don't be prescriptive to developers, and that's, you know, one quite extreme view versus something which is very prescriptive. Like a lot of things, I think there's a midway point which is probably quite healthy. But is that affordability issue is something which I, I think we need to be aware of as an industry. Mm. So it's prescription versus prescription versus performance, affordability. I mean, these are trying to find the sweet spot is um, is what we're trying to do at the moment. So we're we you know, we're alive to to all of those questions, and I think uh, it's it's not easy. It's not easy to to find that balance. But um, you know, we we see an important role for a design review panel at local government level, absolutely, and we see that as being the appropriate venue uh, for this, whether it's. Uh, whether it's done on a more regional basis, uh, you know, we're sort of trying to think that through a bit so that you would ensure that in the panel you actually have got a good spread of expertise to provide um, both support and guidance, uh, I think is going to be important, uh, not only for the panel itself, but also to inform the councils themselves. Um, and whilst, you know, we can point to a number of councils who, who have done well and in fact are, try, are trying to really lead some of that debate, uh, it, it, it is really crucial that we take local government more generally along the journey with us. Mm. 
Can, can I just add something to that that might lift this? And I know, um, I know, Richard, and I know the City of Melbourne have been doing a lot over the last sort of 12 to 18 months to, to rectify this, but an issue of planning certainty. And we see this particularly at local council level, and particularly over the last sort of five years or so, where uh, development sites get sold at, at what we think are inflated levels. Um, and, you know, for instance, an example might be, I think I can get 10 storeys on this site. Uh, I pay the value. The value of that site gets set at that sort of 10 apartment level. That's what it gets bought for. But in effect, they only get five levels on it. And the developer's not that good at taking that, that extra five level, you know, yield out of his profits. So it comes out of the quality of the building. Yeah. So, I mean, I think if, if there's a lot more certainty around what that actual yield might be on a site, um, then then they get sold at the appropriate level and, and the, then the sort of quality <coughs> benefits can then flow through. But well, that also, sorry. Oh, well, that sort of highlights why you need apartment standards, though, because yeah. people do buy sites for too much money. <coughs> that is their, you know, mm. I appreciate there's a, the planning certainty, yes. but there certainly is a history of people paying too much who are looking to cut corners, and the only <coughs> way you can do that is compromise and try and maximise your yield, and so the apartment standards are always well, it's pushing both, back. Yeah, absolutely with that, but also in height controls and, yeah, and other things course. as well. well yeah. And that's what the Central City Built Form Review speaks yes, to. Yes, it mm. does. Exactly that question. So, um, you know, with uh, with the uh, mechanism of plot ratios, you have some certainty yeah, ab about, about what you can do. But but the the key element there, and particularly in terms of with setbacks and how much how much height you can get, but the the fundamental difference here is that we want to actually reward innovation, and we want to reward where people are going to offer back public realm outcomes. Yeah. So <coughs> the the best example of that recently, of course, was the, the so-called Pantscraper, 447 Collins Street, which is a you know, pretty, uni pretty unique building um, and one, you know, it's very rare to have the opportunity for these people to be able to design and build a whole city block. I mean, it's, it's not in my lifetime that I can ever remember that happening. So it's a pretty unique building. But what, what they've also done is actually partner up with the City of Melbourne to say, we're actually going to build a park. So Market Street's going to be half closed and we're going to have a new park right in the heart of the city. Well, that's a public realm outcome, you say, every day of the week. So where you've got a, where you've got a development that is contained by the plot ratio, yes, you can go above that, but tell us what you're going to offer us back. What are you offering back to the public realm uh, is going to be part of that conversation uh, and, how, and how we measure that. So, and it talks about collaboration between government and, yeah. and developers to yeah. get best outcome for everybody, and I think that's super critical. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th I do think the apartment standards <coughs> are, have been um, a step in the right direction. It's fantastic to see that supported by the government. Has there been some consideration that maybe... A, I mean, the, the apartment standards, it's so um, complex an issue that there might be a review, say, in 12 months of how they're going and whether they need tweaks or whatever, or is it once they're in, they're going to stay in? And no, I, I don't think it's... Uh, I, I, I think it's an iterative process, and I think we have to learn from it. Certainly, we've learned to date from some of the feedback that's been provided to us that there are technical aspects of the draft guidelines that that many develop. You know, many developers would say, "Look, it just can't work, and this is why it can't work." Please listen to what we're saying, uh, and we're seeking to modify and to really, really get a set of of apartment guidelines that are sensible and mm. practical and are able to be implemented. Mm. I might just add to that, just to, to structure the question. Um, obviously, the neighbour system was transformative to the to the commercial in, uh, property sector. Was a is a kind of a rating oh, based 
Thank you. This is cruel and unusual punishment here. We don't It's more of a kind of a consumer-friendly rating-based system, Richard. Was that ever was that ever considered? And, and could do you think there, there's scope to, to incorporate that for for more of a kind of a consumer-friendly um, provision to the to the guidelines? Uh, there is some potential for that in the future, I think, but it's not being considered in the context of the guidelines as they are now, as, uh, they, as they're proposed. And then maybe moving forward then to um, going back to planning and how it will actually be kind of applied, maybe, uh, what do you think would be, um, I suppose, the best way to, to educate and empower you know, local governments, as Simon mentioned, just to kind of you know, give them the confidence to, to use discretionary power if it would be, kind of, if it would be best for that site? Oh, well, we've, um, we've got a significant amount of money that we're going to use to actually support uh, and uh, uh, expose local government to what the thinking is. Because uh, clearly, I mean, across local governments, you get, you get patchy outcomes. So, so we want to ensure that, firstly, when the, when the guidelines are put in place, that people do under, fully understand what the, what the guidelines are about uh, and, ha and how, uh, at a local government level, uh, they should ensure when they're making the, their planning decisions uh, that they are, they are making those decisions in, uh, in an informed and a consistent way. Do, do you think there's an, uh, the opportunity in the future for a metropolitan planning authority that could review you know, buildings over a certain scale or height or, and start to centralise that decision making a bit? So we don't, want the, we don't want the state government looking after colours of fences and things, but certainly, say, buildings over four storeys and it, because as the, as the population doubles, the pressure is going to come on these councils enormously to yeah. deliver on those outcomes. And and what we've seen to date is, that, is a number of them just aren't, aren't equipped. You know, they don't have the the uh, infrastructure to deal with those sort of decision making processes. Yeah, I, I would also add to that. You get into a situation whereby it's not in the council's interest to support a town planning application. Mm because from a voter perspective, there's just negative, there's no real yes. positive. So the decision ultimately gets deferred to VCAT. And, and then, you know, where is, uh, in the context of a VCAT member making a decision on something, where is the actual um, input from a, a design perspective when, when you're sitting... Well, well they're becoming here. the de facto plan, the, yeah, the Metropolitan Planning Authority. Yeah. Yeah, and that's... Look, that's that's a really serious challenge and, and one that uh, particularly... Uh, that we've seen, you know, a, what I, what I've called publicly on a number of occasions, a very corrosive debate that uh, is is really uh, anchored in the middle suburbs, where people, where we know, we know from the work that's been done by academics, um, Michael Buxton, who's a, a regular commentator on these matters, uh, his people have done an extraordinary amount of mapping work of brownfields and greyfield sites in the established suburbs. Uh, his argument is is that we could, uh, we could. Uh, just in those established suburbs, house literally hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people without needing to do anything in terms of 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 uh, uh, of the growth corridors, because there's so much capacity available there. So for us, it's for me, it's about trying to shift this corrosive debate and saying, well, uh, you can still continue to enjoy the amenity that you enjoy in the, in the established suburbs, but look over here because here are opportunities where we can put uh, high-quality, medium-density housing that, that, that is not going to offend anybody's sensibilities.
Well, there's two there's two really important studies that were done the last five years. One by the Grattan Institute in 2011 that looked at all the housing that was being delivered across Australia and found that uh, the majority of it was either on the periphery or in the centre in big high-rise towers, yep. and it wasn't delivering on the demand. There's a huge demand for people living close to their uh, to their own communities in medium to you know, yep. to high-density living, uh, and that's starting to bear out now. We're starting to see that, but one of the biggest impediments to it was uh, local government planning. Yep. And then uh, studies that were done by, uh, as you said, like Rob Adams, who took all the tram corridors and said, if we build six yeah, yeah. stories, the height of Paris right across them, we can house everyone to 2050 and everyone can just live as they are. So, I mean, it's not, that's not no. going to quite work like no. that, but the, but the thinking is there. I mean, I think, you know, we, it's, it's just changing the way we're thinking about the way those, those yeah. centres are developed. And in, and in part, we'll, we will use the opportunity that, that's uh, given to us by the residential zones review process. Uh, which I'll be releasing uh, in the next uh, little while, which actually talks to some of the outcomes that have been achieved uh, through, uh, through application of the residential zones <coughs> as well or as poorly as what they were, that, well, they were laid out by my predecessor. But there are some, <coughs> pardon me, there are some interesting... <laughs> that was pretty a, a little jab there. You know. Well, that was pretty diplomatic, given what it was at the polite end. Do you want to talk about Fisherman's Bend? Um, um, I've completely lost my train of thought. Um, that, he does that to me. Um, uh, that uh, that the residential zones review process um, has actually uh, flushed out. I, I think uh, some quite interesting results in terms of uh, the weight that some of the middle suburbs are in fact taking. Which is, which is a good thing. Um, I might just um, maybe finish with a, with a final question, because <coughs> I know um, Minister's quite, quite pressed for time and obviously everyone's a little bit cold. Um, but just in terms of, of the topic of education and how um, obviously we, we touched on um, educating and empowering local governments to, to best, um, best employ these standards. But then I suppose from a, from a consumer perspective as well, um, maybe James, um, what do you think would be you know, the benefit of having that discussion obviously in this context, but in a more, more broader sense to educating buyers into what how the standards could best best support better better housing in future. Um, I mean, I, I personally think the biggest disconnect is between the investor uh, market, so those you know, ma and pa investors who are buying one-off apartments and then looking at it purely from a yield perspective in terms of here is a financial instrument and its its quality is assessed basically in terms of its cash flow and that doesn't address issues uh, around capital capital growth um, or God help them uh, depreciation mm. you know, of, of, of their asset and I, I think a really important thing is actually having a, a more sophisticated conversation about uh, apartments and uh, how they work in a financial sense and then it becomes clear to those uh, investors, those in apartment buyers that if one buys a higher quality apartment in terms of design, in terms of construction, in terms of location, in terms of its relationship to um, amenity, it is a positive financial step and you see that uh, growth in the asset price. And I think that's a really important thing and that then guides the market naturally um, uh, towards higher quality product because the majority of the buyers in the market are those investors and they will then demand of developers a better quality product. So I think that in, from an educational perspective is, is an absolutely uh, crucial thing. 
So I see that as key. And then in terms of the owner-occupier market, I personally think that will look after itself. I mean, if people are buying apartments for them to live in, they are more focused on quality because it is a more long-term purchase. Um, if people are renting, they look and say six months, 12 months, two years, it's not as substantial. Whereas if someone's buying an apartment, they're going to be more focused on, on uh, quality and, and probably less education is needed in that space. And it's been really interesting from a Neo Metro perspective. I mean, our apartments are slightly more expensive, call it 10% more expensive than other apartments out, out there on a per square metre basis. But we offer a, a better quality product from a design perspective, construction perspective, public realm, etc. And educating uh, buyers is, um, you know, sometimes you think it's really easy and at other times it, it becomes quite difficult. But where it is more straightforward is when you're dealing with those owner-occupiers. Trying to educate uh, the investor aspect of the market can be you know, really, really tricky because they're overly focused on yield, in my mind. But there also has been the bad press now that uh, people you know, buying a property for a certain amount of money and then the banks won't give them the funding, and that is driving consumer awareness because people are protective of their hip pocket, and that is an investor issue an owner-occupier's motivation is going to be different. I mean, these are a lot of the things that maybe have become a lot more evident over the last couple of years, which are making people raise the bar, which is all very positive. It's quite interesting because I actually think that the role of debt in the market, you know, you've got a limited source of debt, and debt is crucial to development, and uh, as there's a squeeze on available debt and uh, perceived uh, perceived and real risk in terms of banks lending to developers, what we're seeing is the banks getting a lot fussier and fussier as to who they will lend to, uh, and that then causes due diligence on who the end buyers are. And banks don't like offshore buyers at all, and they uh, like to avoid, uh, particularly in the last six months, uh, developments which are very, very investor-focused. So that is then causing developers to uh, focus more on owner-occupier product because it's more straightforward to get the uh, capital support in a debt sense to, to see the projects through. So you've got all these different bits of the puzzle uh, from a regulatory perspective, uh, consumer sentiment, uh, debt, etc., all moving around, which and I, I think collectively it's all heading in the right direction towards better quality apartments in, in Melbourne, uh, but there, there is certainly a lot going on. Well, I might maybe wrap it up on that note, and I'm very aware Minister has to run, um, but I'm sure James, Karen and Simon would be happy to hang around for a little bit longer if anyone has any questions. Um, so thank you again all so much for coming. I'm very happy that the rain has held mm, off. Um, and I encourage you all to take a look at openjournal.com.au, which will have you know more of this content coming out in the next few weeks. So thank you again. Thank you. <laughs> Good on you.